Welcome to the Recover Everything podcast, where we have honest discussions about everything in recovery and mental health. Enjoy. There's 23 million people struggling with addiction. Whatever your answer is. Lift the shame and stigma of addiction. Don't choose anything that will jeopardize yourself. Look, you can face this, even though you think you can't. You can. So find your own recovery story. Own it. Embrace it. Work through it. Each and every one of us matters. I kind of hung out with everybody, but then I, uh, I really ended up isolating, particularly the, the last uh, two years. Is there any specific reason for that? Um... Nobody wants to hang out with you? <laughs> no, no. The way, you know, when I first partied, I would be waving my hand in the air and I, I always had money. Okay. And um, so I was always buying everybody drinks or drugs and it was like, woo. Um, and then I like to party uh, really hard. Okay. Um, and uh, was really weird. I was saying this yesterday. The way I party, my face is all crinkled up. I have an extremity pointing straight in the air, and I, I can't speak. Mm. Um, so that doesn't really play well for hanging out with everybody. So the, the gradual <laughs> progression to isolation happens sort of naturally, uh, although as I've studied the disease of addiction, I learned that that's the natural progression. Yeah, you start out partying with a bunch of people. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, I don't want to share either. I eventually don't want to share anything that I have with anyone. I had this problem like like that time. I made more money it. in interest than I could put, than I could consume. So even when I was in the, in the depths of my disease, my only like parameters were like I was afraid to go to the bank, but I could always get 500 a day. So my, my limit from the ATM, and mm-hmm. I generally would give my card to someone to go to the ATM because I also couldn't go outside. Right. So I had someone else go to the ATM and I, so I had this $500 a day habit that I was managing to only because that's I couldn't get my act together enough to go into the bank and do a more substantial withdrawal. Right. I guess that's kind of a good thing. <laughs> you didn't take more money out? Well, um, the good thing was that I have a really hard head and okay. I'm a never say die kind of guy. Okay. And I was bludgeoned. I was 100% beaten. I was an empty carcass of a human being. And I, I really needed to be that for me to, to wave that proverbial white flag. Mm-hmm. Um, before, and, before we get on that, we'll start the show. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, we're well, not in the show? Yeah, well, we are now. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Recover Everything podcast. I'm your host, Chris West. With me is Kaylin Votrino. Hello. And our guest today is Dave Marlin. Howdy. Um, Dave, yo, I've heard a lot about you. We've, I've seen you around. You're a very prominent figure in the Las Vegas recovery community. Aww. At least that's what I think. <laughs> um, being a, a prominent figure in, in a group of sick people, yeah. um, you know, is, uh, is actually something I am proud of. I, I'm a sick man trying to get well mm-hmm. and, and pr- try part of trying to be well means, um, helping other people. You know, we all say we can't keep what we don't give away. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so a big part of that is, uh, is trying to, to, to be open, to be available. Uh, I, I was realizing I was asked today to, to be the chairman of a, of a nonprofit board, and I realized it's, it's my seventh nonprofit. 
um, that I'm on the board of. Mm -hmm. And um, it's almost a full-time job doing nonprofit work. And, and to me, thank God that that's what I get to spend my, my life doing as opposed to getting cramps in my legs from holding the door closed while I'm crouched on the floor. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, sweating and bleeding and um, in terror. It's a big uh, change. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. It is materially better. <laughs> so you're currently sitting on seven boards. I, I am. Don't ask me to name them all. I was going to ask I'll, you to name them all. <laughs> um, Give it a shot. All right. Oh, man. Now, if I do six, okay. I'm going to really hurt the feelings of somebody <laughs> if they listen to this. Um, uh, first and foremost, there's a, a new nonprofit called uh, Vegas Stronger. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I'm on the board of Vegas Stronger, and and really, I got to see Las Vegas pulled together uh, after two years ago after we saw the atrocity at, at Mandalay Bay. And the way I saw this community pulled together to help address, whether it was donating blood mm -hmm. or was, um, a lot of my, my uh, friends, employees offering free uh, counseling services, really being there for people was something I hadn't seen Las Vegas do in my uh, 32 years of living here. And so it really infused me with pride and, um, and uh, love of our community. The number one health problem in our community is addiction. Okay. And, and we all, we lose far too many people to addiction. So the Vegas Stronger uh, effort is to try to pull the community together uh, in total to help address the substance abuse problem, particularly in our homeless population. Okay. One. One. Mm -hmm. uh, two, um, and I'm not necessarily doing these in priority order, but uh, the Las Vegas Rescue Mission yeah. is a beautiful gospel mission that has been around for about 50 years, providing a bed and a meal to every human being who comes to their door. It's a similar uh, goal as the Vegas Stronger. It is, although um, Vegas Stronger really took something I learned when I ran Solutions Recovery. Solutions Recovery uh, became the largest drug and alcohol treatment center in Nevada in mm -hmm. terms of revenue for, for several years in a row. And what I learned, there was 10 things we did that provided amazing results. And... I am, I'm currently in a doctoral program working on my, my psychology uh, doctoral degree. And, and I'm reading all the evidence on what is an evidence-based treatment to help address substance use disorders. Sure. And, and I'm realizing we're still, I consider us in an adolescent phase of really having developed protocols and procedures for treating this addiction. And I believe there's 10 things that when offered all together is the absolute best way to treat addiction. And I'm, what we did at Solutions Recovery is we offered each of them on a little wellness campus. Now what we're trying to do is Vegas, at Vegas Stronger is offer on an outpatient basis. We're going into Las Vegas Rescue Mission and we're doing, we're bringing psychiatry. So you're tag teaming it. We're tag teaming it, but it's, it's basically an outpatient substance abuse system uh, going into each of the shelters. And, and right now we're contracting. Uh, we've got uh, over half of the shelters contracted, but we're in the kind yeah. of lawyer phase of contracting with each of them to offer these 10 services. What are those 10 services? 
All right. Same thing yeah. with my ADHD brain. I'm going to probably get eight. Um, psychiatric services and med management, uh, counseling services, uh, family therapy, uh, case management services, uh, housing, um, nutrition, food, uh, vitamins. Sure. Um, Medical? We... Through the case management process, we're Copy. connecting them with medical. Sure. But we're not picking up the medical component. Um, there's a recovery component, making sure the fact that we don't have variety of 12-step meetings in every shelter every single day is is something we're missing. <laughs> we need to every single day. Okay. Uh, uh, so engaging the recovery community to, and to bring them into the various <laughs> shelters. Um, oh, salon services. Okay. Something we did that was a little unique was we had a, uh, a salon on campus and offering a haircut, a manicure, a pedicure, and having people look good and feel good about themselves. Mm-hmm. That goes a long way. Is, is one of the 10. Uh, fitness component. There's nine, I think, right there, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. Well, the fitness and yoga, um, I really learned watching 5,000 people come through our doors and then recover. I learned that the kitchen sink was the best way to treat addiction because I watched some people become yogis and really get into yoga and they're like, yoga is what saved my life from addiction. I'm like, wow, that's great. And then I reached somebody else and they found it was counseling. Mm -hmm. And they said, counseling was what saved my life. And I was like, all right, that's it. And then I watched somebody say, you know what? Addressing my bipolar disorder with some psychotropic medications that weren't addictive. It was was the pharmacotherapy that that really solved my addiction. I was like, oh, that's it. And then then talking to somebody and saying, you know what? I go to 12-step meetings and 12-steps and then meeting another person who and saying that they started running marathons and, and a fitness program and that was it. Or eating right. Or eating right. And and my wife pointed out, she's like, you know, Dave, you take you take 19 vitamins every morning. And I was like, you know, it's just a weird thing I picked up after I got sober. It's unrelated. Mm-hmm. I just really care about my body and my fitness mm-hmm. right now. Um, interestingly enough, and I'm going to tangent yet again. Um, my wife and I, for the last three weeks, have been vegans. Okay. Um, which is Yay. not a vegan. I'm also a vegan, but yeah. I'm a vegan too now. <laughs> are you doing You're a vegan it, vegan. Are you planning on doing it for good, or are you just doing it for veganary? I have a doc who takes 12 vials of blood every three months. And what I committed to do is, in between my last blood draw and the next one, mm-hmm. I'm a pure vegan, and, uh, and I'm going to see what the results are. I think for sure I'm using it to modify my life because with a, I have a sister who's a professor teaching at Yale in the global warming studies, sure. and, and her and I talk a lot, and just the effect of the planet, mm-hmm. of, uh, of being a meat eater, mm-hmm. and, and I'm, I'm going to tangent yet again, so you're going to have to Please start Please tangent. This is one of my favorite subjects, so tangent away. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was at a, a Thursday morning meeting yesterday and I, I talked about this when I mentioned that I'm a vegan I had a guy shame me uh-huh. and say well I eat meat and I'm a man good for you and I was like well right on man um and he's like so you're not uh, and and because you don't you know you're you're one of those sure. vegan people I was right. like you know it's so funny I used to have people tell me that because I don't drink Jack Daniels that I'm not a man and it was that same mentality ma- that same ego and it's it's false 
Oh, definitely. It's 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 false about vegans and it's false about alcoholics. It's, it's the literally. fact that I don't drink beer and I don't drink whiskey and I don't happen to eat beef it, does not make me less of a man as far as I'm concerned. It could uh, literally apply to any subject. Oh, you play video games, you don't mm-hmm. work out, you work out. Uh, mm-hmm. You watch ballet, you participate in it. You don't watch ballet. None of these things has anything to do with whether or not you're a man. Uh, Agreed. Or, or woman. I mean, it's ego and social constructs that since I've become sober, I'm, I'm a little more aware of and I'm, I'm able to call them out when I see them. And, and the way I like to do that is if I see someone in a meeting, cause I go to a lot of meetings who's like being picked on a little bit for being different. Um, I, I love interjecting myself and helping support them. And, and whether it's when I'm being a counselor and just managing the group to, uh, to call out hate um, in, in whatever form. Sure. Uh, I, I think it's a, uh, it's a requirement uh, of all of us to be try to become more aware of the, the hate within ourselves because mm-hmm. every one of us has some prejudice. Agreed. And, and to become more aware of it and then to, to try to, uh, to intercede and, uh, and address it whenever we can. So back to these 10, uh, uh, 10 things. You're pretty much given these people that are coming to Vegas Stronger, uh, a multitude, like you said, you're throwing the kitchen sink at them. Yeah, it's yeah. a menu we offer to each of these uh, shelters. Now, each shelter might say, I don't want the counseling component. I don't want the fitness component, but I'm offering all 10. Mm-hmm. And uh, they get to pick on an a la carte menu. And if they want my yogi to come in, my yogi is going to come in and do classes. If they'll allow my psychiatrist to come in and by mine, I mean, Vegas Stronger has contracted with several psychiatrists and we're sure. going to have them come in a day. We'll line up clients and, and help do med management. And when I say med management, I'm i uh, I'm an abstinence guy. So one of the things Vegas Stronger is doing is, and I'm going to get in big trouble here. Um, is we are calling out, we're calling out uh, things that could hurt people, and uh, one of the things is um, is maintenance use for opiates. Okay. Now so you're talking methadone or and and when I talk about that, medication assisted treatment mm-hmm. is consists mostly of three drugs: methadone, which is a hundred percent effective for some people. Mm-hmm. Buprenorphine, yep. which is 100% effective for some people, and, abs- and excuse me, naltrexone, okay. which is 100% effective for some people. And I'm not saying any one of those is good or bad. What I'm saying is that Vegas Stronger, um, the psychiatrists who are working with us, agree to primarily use naltrexone. Because? Uh, because naltrexone is not an, it's not an agonist. Um, so we are going to be working with each client to work towards abstinence. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean if my son, and the, the example I always used to, I love to use is my son. If my son becomes uh, addicted to opiates, relapses and tries treatment 10 different times and engages in crimes or trouble, mm-hmm. he would be a, a good candidate to consider using methadone. Yeah. However... Um, and I, I believe the same thing with buprenorphine. However, if it's his first co- time coming to treatment, I believe a, a first-time person should should engage in a counseling program to work towards abstinence. Mm-hmm. That might be a, a 60-day buprenorphine taper. Mm-hmm. It might be a, uh, a four-day taper. 
And, and now Trexone, whether it's oral, whether it is injectable posterior, or it's an implant, any one of those things are, uh, are, are, are possibilities determined by the doc. I'm not a doc. However, right now we have uh, methadone clinics around town. They're championing it. Yep. We have some buprenorphine clinics, and they're championing. That's suboxone, right? Yes, that's mm-hmm. suboxone. We don't really have buprenorphine. Uh, we don't really have naltrexone uh, and, clinics. Uh, what's so, the difference between naltrexone? It's a. Uh, it is not an agonist. It ends up. It's just a blockade. Okay. So you, there is no euphoria. There's no. Uh, it doesn't stimulate. It, it is you don't not get an high agonist. From it. You do not get high from it at mm-hmm. all. It is just a blockade. Okay. But it curves the cravings. It does curve the cravings on the front end, so you don't want it. Mm-hmm. And if you take it, if you inject heroin while you have naltrexone on board, it's like injecting water. Yeah. But there is there, and this was brought up quite often lately that I hear is that the the what are the chances of like overdose when you are um, taking naltrexone? Uh, there's a, a chance of overdose if you're not taking it. Mm-hmm. There's a chance of taking it if you are taking it. There's sure. a chance of taking it when you're on buprenorphine. There's a chance of overdosing when you're sure. on methadone. So yes, there is a chance. Now, when they, when you read the studies, it is equally efficacious as buprenorphine treatment. However, sure. again, there are no naltrexone facilities uh, or, or championing facilities. So Vega Stronger is is trying to become a like, naltrexone championing trying to fill that entity. Gap. Yes. Now, do you think that that's because naltrexone is newer? It newer on the market has less. What do you think the reasoning is behind that? I, in my opinion, I think it's because it, there's no euphoria. I believe. Well, for the for my people, for the people who want it, you know, when I'm out there and I'm high, if you tell me I got three choices. I'm going to want the one uh, that now gets Trexone's me high. Now, Trexone's the least. Right. So, so the addicts, that's the one they want the least. Yeah. So if we if we survey people who are actively using, there, there's going to be nobody who's going to say, hook me up with a Vivitrol shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because one, it's going to hurt my butt, and two, it's going to get me nothing. Yeah. Um, so right. one is... That it's going to keep you from feeling something if you if you did try. Correct. And now, now I'm going to get into my conspiracy theory, which I think what you're supposed to talk about in, yep. in podcasts, right? Exactly. Okay. Now, if you call SAMHSA, uh, which is the federal government, and if it, you yeah. talk to folks in Congress, they're going to generally tell you buprenorphine's the answer for the opiate epidemic. And to me, if you would have asked Congress uh, 30 years ago, you know, what the answer, what, they would tell you there's a pain problem. And the answer is we all need to be on oxycodone. Yeah. And, and I'm... I'm looking pretty, uh, with a lot of scrutiny, um, at what they, they yeah. tell us to do. And the fact that the gener- the generic answer from big pharma to address this oxycodone epidemic is more pharma is, is, yeah. is, is, is to have a buprenorphine epidemic. So I'm not, I'm not crapping on it. And if there's a listener out there who's using buprenorphine and it's keeping them sober, Dude, do that. Keep doing it. Yeah, I, I am. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Matter of fact, I have a, a home group I go to, and just recently there's been some folks who were on buprenorphine coming, and there's been some like within group shaming, mm-hmm. and and I jump all over that because to me, um, they are working a program and it's their program, and if it's if so, it's helping their lives, I 100 percent support them. It's not we, a one size fits all. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Every, Thank you. Everybody's different. Like everybody's experience. Everybody, you know what I mean. So you can't really. It's a main theme of this podcast is there are multiple pathways. Mm-hmm. I mean, we constantly say it. I'm a big advocate of that. Of whatever works for you, I don't care what it is. 
Same. As as Same. As, as long as, as you're not hurting somebody yeah, exactly. else. Yeah. And and for me. And yourself. If you have an addictive disorder, is as long as it's working towards abstinence. Yeah. Um, Beginning, middle, and end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Amen. The third nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about that for a long, long time. Yeah. We could do and a whole podcast on I'm, that. I'm subject. down too. So, yeah. so you, you guys are driving. I'm. Yeah. I'm just uh, number three. Number three is Help of Southern Nevada. Okay, what is uh, that one? Help of Southern Nevada is the largest social service agency in in uh, Nevada. They are uh, and also a very long-term nonprofit. And they have, last time I looked, they have 12 different divisions. They're, they do like some homeless outreach. They have the Shannon West um, Shelter. Homeless uh, Youth Shelter. Homeless Youth Shelter. Uh, they have a Healthy Kids Program. They have tons of program, And it's really... To me, they're they're sort of like like the IBM or the the, the kind of blue chip nonprofit yeah. of our community, really helping to keep together the social fabric um, of the nonprofit world. And, I, and I'm honored uh, to have been on their board for a dozen years, um, serve on a couple of uh, or have served on a couple of different committees and efforts. Uh, they're a great organization. Four, um, the uh, the UNLV Soccer Foundation. Fair enough. Um, hey. I'm a I'm a soccer player. Right. Uh, I, I still play. Um, and uh, what I, what position? I'm a right wing. Okay. Um, I, I like uh, I like running down the side of the field and then getting a good a good uh, center ball uh, and and feeding somebody to score. I was never uh, an offensive player. Always defense. Hmm. All right. Um, I respect both sides. Yeah. Um, now, I wasn't fast enough. <laughs> Vegas is is a growing community, and with a lot of the things that are happening, we're ripe for a soccer stadium for UNLV. Okay. Uh, right now, UNLV soccer is kind of pushed off to a tiny corner on their campus. Very few people come to their games, but they do have free food before every game. Do they really? Yeah, wow. for, the, for the Booster Club. Um, I encourage you to check out a UNLV Rebel soccer game. We are on the brink of becoming a really great uh, team, and, um, and, and I, I really think soccer's a world sport, uh, as opposed to baseball or football, yeah. which are kind of like generic to, to yeah. the U.S., so I, so I, love, uh, I love soccer. Um, the Nevada Organ Transplant Network Foundation. Um, is, uh, I think that's five. We yeah. have five. Okay. Now. That one's kind of self-explanatory a little bit. It is. However, Nevada is number one in the country in organ procurement. Really? Now that's both a blessing and a curse. It sounds a little scary. Well, right. We have a lot of people overdosing. <laughs> I and, was going to say. That's... And when they do, you know, their corneas are fine. Uh, maybe some of their other organs are fine. Right. So, so we are, um, we're number one. Uh, in the U.S. in organ procurements. Right now, we just do liver transplants at uh, UMC. Excuse me. We just do kidney transplants, and we're working on bringing a, a liver transplant program. We're also working on really shortening the list because when you need a kidney, um, it could take a long time before you get one, maybe too long. So getting the list to be able to get people transplants, getting that shorter, getting it more efficient, and then bringing in the talent of surgeons, uh, transplant surgeons, and their, all their teams, it, it really means um, when we bring in the liver program over the next three years, we're going to bring over $150 million worth of revenue to Nevada okay. just in bringing this infrastructure for, uh, for organ transplantation. How long has this one been around? Um, 
It's a good question. More than 10 years. Okay. They struggled. Uh, we're teetering on bankruptcy about two years ago. We brought in a hotshot from, uh, he was running the program in Florida, and he's really um, named Joe, and he, he's really, uh, he's putting a team together, and uh, we're, we're going to grow the organ transplant infrastructure and service uh, in, in Las Vegas. And, and I really think as we become a real city, not the kind of city where if you get sick, you got to go to LA to get healthcare, mm-hmm. but but like a, a real city, backing up with with really high level, A level medical care is important, and I'm honored to serve on the uh, Nevada Organ Transplant Foundation. Board. How do how do they how does one go about shortening the list by just uh, getting more transplants? Um, right now it's it's transplant surgeons, okay, and and these are sort of forgive me. Uh, all the transplant surgeons who are listening, you guys are like prima donnas. And then you you have requirements for facility, you have requirements for team. And here in Las Vegas, there isn't a large labor pool to to attract. So we need some money to bring not just the hotshot doctor, but um, their teams, but their teams and the facility and equipment. So it's it's a lot of capital raise. Yeah, it seems like it seems extremely difficult. It's like you're working with a Rock stars, rock, rock stars who only want brown M and M's. Exactly. Sad. I only have green M and M's. Six. Six. Uh, Patty Farley asked me to join her nonprofit, uh, which feeds seven thousand children every weekend. And at this nonprofit, what they do is they found that we have all these school lunch programs. Mm. So a lot of kids come to school and they're hungry. And so they-, they That was a part of those uh, mm-hmm. programs. Oh, right kid. on. Yeah. Um, well, um, her nonprofit provides bags at every school Friday afternoon to give kids food to eat on the weekends. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really just coming up with a, a patch for that. And um, I, I support their efforts. Serving our kids. There we go. I, I remembered it. You mean you're human? I'm. Oh, well, man. Not only am I human, <laughs> but don't tell anybody, but I took a lot of drugs <laughs> at, at one point. So so some of my short-term memory. I relate <laughs> on a level that is like. <laughs> I mean, I didn't take a lot of drugs, but I still feel like I'm on the same level. It's like, what's my excuse now? I forget things all the time. That's because you're such a superstar in your regular life, your regular day life. I don't think so. <laughs> I think so. Well, thanks. I see your cape. Yeah. I see it. I, w- I was in a similar program in elementary school where on the weekends they would, they would come to all the local parks mm-hmm. and do the same thing. Give out lunches and dinners and bags and whatnot for multiple days. But this was like inner city, mid 90s L.A., Right. So it's very different. I feel um, like Vegas is is growing that way. You know what I mean? Like Greg, Vegas is growing really, really, really big. And um, but the still the thought of like kids going home on the weekends without anything to eat is just horrifying. mind blowing for me. You know what I mean? Obviously, I think it's just I've never I never experienced that as a kid. And I my own kids. But still, I mean, I, I'm just I'm grateful that there's organizations out there that make sure that, you know. It can help as many people as they can. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of changes that, yeah. that are recurring. You know, when I went to school, in high school, you know, I, I remember the kids who did drugs. 
is a small group, and I knew them, mm-hmm. and, and I avoided them. I, I was a weirdo on my yearbook. I actually wrote Freak above each kid who used drugs yeah. in my gra- high school graduating class because I was so anti-drugs. Um, I went back and looked at it, and I, I was just like, I repelled him so much. And, um, and it was a small number. Uh, I've done programs in... I've done over 100 speeches in Clark County school auditoriums talking to kids. And when I've done that, I've been astounded by the prevalence of drug use within, uh, within our schools. Um, I do this one drill, and I've done it over 100 times, and whether it was in, in Gorman or Faith or... Green Valley or Palo Verde, where I ask all the school officials to leave the auditorium. And then I say, all right, yo, raise your hand if you've been offered an oxyroxy or hydro in the last 30 days. Or, you know, who's seen them? And about 80% of the kids raise their hand. 80%? Yeah. And to me, when I went to school, when it was like I could count them on my two hands Mm -hmm. in my graduating class who had, you know, 450 Mm -hmm. kids, um, we're in a totally different time. So not only are we in a time where there's lots of kids who need food, but there's also such a different prevalence of drug use. Because it's, it's so accessible now. Yeah. I think there's a variety of reasons. Yeah. Part of it is supply. Sure. But, it, but then that's not the education. only reason. Yeah, there's education. Um, there's also there's, there's this uh, mentality in the internet world of immediate gratification. I completely agree. And... It's, it, you know, taking a hit um, is something that gives immediate gratification, particularly the, the, the earlier hits that you do in your life. So it does appear to, to be an answer to what you're looking for. You know, those of us who've been through it realize that it's a lie and that it's, it's fake and that while it might make you feel good for a second, the, the travesty and the... Uh, and the hurt that it does to you and your family and your loved ones. And the wasted time. Yeah, and the wasted time. Um, you know, I tell a story. I'm Italian, and I, I like cooking on Sundays. And I, when I make a, a tomato sauce, and it stinks up the whole house, and I always get fresh bread, and, and we, we'll, we'll dip the bread and eat it, and, and you know, eating a bowl of pasta, watching football or something. To me, it's like heaven. Um, when my son walks down... And I still think of when he would take his two hands and he'd put them around me and he'd squeeze me Mm -hmm. and say, I love you, Daddy. Um, That is better than any hit in the world. And and the fact that at a point in my life, I was confused. I was confused thinking that the endorphin rush, the um, the feeling that I got that that it was better uh, getting it chemically versus getting it in reality is, is terrifying to me. I completely understand what you're saying. I feel like you want to say something, Caitlin. I mean, I just relate. I mean, obviously, I think. Um, but I'm what I what else I was thinking is that you know, unfortunately, um, if I would have tried to tell myself myself now, telling myself back then, exactly what you just explained, I would have brushed you off and thought you were. You know what I mean? Like it's bullshit. Like. You know, and unfortunately, we have to go through all of those experiences in order to have the contrast and know that those that 
our son's hands around our waist are what really gives us the ultimate high, you know, and sitting at home watching football with our family on Sundays is the ultimate high. But when you're telling an 11th grader, you know, um, in high school, I, you know, I started, that's when I started my, I started doing opiates when I was a junior in high school 20 years ago. I graduated high school 20 years ago. Seems impossible. So I I did. (laughs) And, you know, and it's like, it took a long time in a lot of those situations. And then I would even come back from using and try to get sober. And still, I couldn't put that together. I had a little boy at home. I still couldn't put that together. It took what it took. I, I tell a story that I'm, I'm pretty good at sales. And, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I, whether I was in, in the insurance business or I'm in the trade business, business I'm pretty good at uh, breaking down barriers to entry, uh, breaking down ambivalence, and, 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 and selling. And to me, if you could clone me okay. or time travel me and send me back 20 years, and 20 years ago, kick in the door, show up at the hotel where I was mm-hmm. and be like, Dave, check it out. I'm Dave. <laughs> I've come back 20 years to come talk to you. Dude, you want to get sober. Dave would have told Dave to screw off. Yep. Um, I, even I couldn't have convinced myself um, until I was ready. So I wholeheartedly agree with mm-hmm. what you're saying. And it's it's so sad that we have to uh, we have to come to that gestalt ourself mm-hmm. but um but I, think, I agree with you yeah and i'm i mean that's that's what i love that's why i love what we do you know i love being able to help people i love being able to expose the community what in whatever age it is in whatever arena that like if you do experience these things or you think you're experiencing these things like here are all the resources that you have at your fingertips you know because i think that's one thing that i did lack during that time and my parents as well, they did not have the resources or the information to make the decisions that they needed to make in my benefit. And for everybody listening, I'll put up all of uh, Dave's nonprofits on, on the page. Thanks. Uh, so, let's mention SNAP. SNAP. Uh, oh, yes. Because uh, NADAC is the uh, National Association of Alcohol and Drug Abuse Counselors. Okay. And uh, I'm serving as the current local uh, president. And um, it's a great organization because, as I mentioned, this is the number one health problem in our mm-hmm. community. And the answer to drug addiction is treatment. So pulling all the treatment professionals together so we work shoulder to shoulder, not isolated, mm-hmm. is so important. So I'm, I'm a big, uh, I like volunteering my time and working on SNAP events. Uh, we have an annual symposium once a year, which is well attended with great speakers, with, with support legislatively, regulatory from the, the, uh, the deputy of Medicaid spoke um, at, at our event uh, this year. Um, in, but, in SNAP, you're talking about the... Southern Nevada Association of Addiction Professionals. Okay. That one. I go to that one. That's why I know that one. (laughs) Yeah, our meetings are open to anybody, and Mm -hmm. our next meeting is is Tuesday at 9 Mm a.m. I don't know when this airs, but... Soon. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) Um, So now that we've kind of gone through, we did it a little backwards. Usually I ask personal, like, questions first, like, so the audience can get to know you. Uh, But we kind of just went straight into all the stuff you're doing. We'll we'll do reverse. Why don't we, why don't you tell the audience a little bit, you know, about how you got into all this and where you come from and, 
your little history there. Um, sure. Where were you born? Thanks for asking. I, I was born in North Shore Hospital in Manhasset, New York. Okay. Um, it, it was interesting because my mom was like 19, my dad was 18, and uh, it was in the 60s, and they were partying, and uh, they were ill-prepared to have a child. Mm. And um, unfortunately, my parents told me many times that they both wanted an abortion. And then my <laughs> so grandmother, who is a hardcore Catholic Italian, uh, she forbade it. And um, luckily, luckily, yeah. <laughs> so um, somebody was looking out for you very early on. No, my, my grandma, uh, Lucille Mishita, Grandma Lulu, um, was the best woman in the world. Um, I, I, my wife and I have a, a plot purchased in Palm Mortuary right by her. Okay. Um, so I'm going to, I want to be with my grandma forever, um, here in Las Vegas, which is an, an interesting thing to mention. Cause in, in the year 2000, I did this program called leadership Las Vegas through the chamber of commerce, which I recommend. It's a really cool program where you really get to learn a lot of our community. But during that time we did this survey and we're like, why do people not feel this sense of community in Las Vegas like they do in other places? And there was this one question. They were like, where are you going to be buried? And mm -hmm. at the time, in the year 2000, I said, and I waved over my right shoulder, back home. And back home was some nebulous place. And sure. I imagined a tree in New York someplace, and I was going to be buried there. I completely understand what you're saying. Well, uh, about, I don't know, sometime later, after I'd lived here for maybe 20 years, I said, I'm going to be buried in my home. My home is Las Vegas. Mm. And uh, so my wife and I, we bought our plot uh, by my grandma and grandpa. And, and to me, it changes a little bit the way I look at this community. I'm very curious about this because I come from a different state as well. And I lived in L.A. for 15 years and been here for going on 17 years. And it definitely took a good 10 years before I was like, oh, yeah. This is home. This is home. And you saying this now about being buried here, it's like, I've never thought of that. Where would, where would I want to be buried? It's like, probably here, it, which and, seems strange. And to me, it seems strange, too. And it, it seems it could be a morbid topic, but to me, it's not. not. Really? It's not. And, and it, to me, it was about the same amount of time. Vegas is a transient place. But when, when we become, this is our home. Yeah, vegans, uh, <laughs> not vegans, as my wife always corrects me. Oh, I love you, Carolina. Um, <laughs> nice plug. Yes. Yeah, that's my wife. <clears throat> always got to plug the wife, always. Um, we're both sober. She's, uh, my wife's amazing. Uh, she, uh, an eight-year Marine. Uh, she's still a Marine first. Um, wife second? Uh, second, uh, second, my wife, yeah. Um, Marine mom, wife. Yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting when I, when I met Carolina, she had a, a child, my son's age and my, my prior relationship, uh, the woman didn't have a child. And I just found not having a child is like one of the most important things in her life. It really became like, it was incongruent. Um, and having girl relationship person competing with child mm. for, for playtime with daddy was like, we, that's a big problem. Um, so the fact that Carolina and I, we each have a child, and, and they both call me uh, dad or pops. Uh, they're, they're both my sons. But, but it was an important aspect um, of our relationship for, for me to uh, 
uh, to be with Carolina, but I, I love uh, Owen and Tristan, our two sons, and uh, you know that, that's my wife. So when uh, that's that was very nice, by the way. All right, um, born in New York, when did you come here? I came here on an acid trip in uh, 1987. And just and never left. Uh, it was really funny. Um, someone came and uh, <laughs> great they, they, they're yeah. at a wedding and they said, you should come work in Vegas. And I was like, well, I'm tripping. And I, no, I wasn't <laughs> at the time. I said, I'll have to tell my girlfriend and my landlord and my job. And they said, great, because I got a plane ticket tomorrow. So I went out with all my friends and we partied. And, and then the next morning I met my aunt at the airport and we flew to Vegas and then we and I took four hefty bags and two milk crates of albums, okay. which was my worldly possessions. Sure. So I'm, I came to I'm Vegas in 1987 myself. with uh, two milk crates and four hefty bags. What was your favorite album in that crate? Uh, I'm a deadhead. Okay. Mm. Uh, so so actually, I also had a bunch of cassette tapes, <laughs> and, and my cassette tapes, um, I probably had some cassette tapes that were my favorite. Um, but I was a like a rock and roll guy. So, uh, I'll call, I'll say Blood on the Tracks. Okay. Uh, Bob Dylan. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, favorite. Have you seen that new uh, documentary about Bob Dylan? I don't think it's fairly so. fairly recently. It's oh. really good. Yeah, all right. Um, Where would you find this documentary? I think on Amazon or something. Okay. Um, it, it's, we'll not talk about Bob Dylan. Okay. I'm more curious, you said you were on an acid trip. So you flew yeah. here on an acid trip? Well, I was with my friends, and I, I, I overindulged, mm -hmm. and we came to Vegas, and I was with my aunt, and then I remember waiting at the carousel for for the uh, stuff to get off, and I gathered my hefty bags while she grabbed her, like, I don't know, Louis Vuitton luggage or something like that, and then she took me around and started introducing me to people, and I'm, like, seeing trails. And this is when um, you got a job? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of work are you, were you in? Um, I worked in the Helmsley building in Manhattan doing sales in a cubicle. Okay. Uh, it was in the construction industry, but they were multi-million dollar jobs. And I got uh, offered a job in a in a trainee program for an HMO. I ended up taking a cut. I was making twenty five grand a year, and I came to Vegas and I worked for twenty grand a year. And I I, I started working. And interestingly, you know, it was a, a company that did drug testing. So I I, I had to be very careful about uh, utilizing drugs, uh -huh. and um, which made me increase my alcohol consumption. Sure, because uh, that was that was accepted and, and okay, um, but I, I did. Um, I guess I was a weekend warrior, so mm -hmm. I, I worked really hard um, at this one company for for twenty years, um, while I, I also partied really hard on the weekends. So when did it start becoming an issue? Well, um, you know, during the time I told you it was never an issue. Yeah. Um, although when when I look back. Um, there was a, a time in in high school where I, I, I was a nerd, I was in a lot of the AP classes, but I noticed that my friend, when I found alcohol, which was wonderful, mm -hmm. I noticed that my peer group changed because I, I would like to black out and some of the kids who I hung out with, they just kind of avoided me. Mm -hmm. and, and, it was, and I, at the time, I would say it didn't affect me but when I look back, I learned that I actually started changing peer groups and, um, and, and you know, began the, the voyage into full-blown alcoholism. So it affected me as soon as I drank. Um, 
When did you, when did you notice you needed a change? And how did you go about that change? I, I really never noticed. Um, I, I was oblivious. Somebody noticed for you? Well, everyone else in my life noticed. And I, and I really, I became isolated. Um, and, and the last two years, I stopped hanging out with my friends. I stopped hanging out with my family. I just pretty much lived to drink and use. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then on uh, May 15th of 05, I went to one of my best friends who I work with, and I was like, you know, sometimes I, I drink more than I should, and I'm, I'm looking for some place to do. And he gave me a list of three places to go. And like a good alcoholic, I said, great. And I picked a fourth place. And I went to a place that was going to be by the beach. And um, I went to a place called uh, Capistrano by the Sea. Mm-hmm. I showed up. Um, I had no idea what it was. Some lady met me at an airport with a sign. I got in a van. Some guy showed up who seemed to really want my check. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote him a check, and I never saw him again. Um, and then I met some guy uh, who's my roommate. His name was Brent, and he was like a producer in uh, in L.A., and he was really cool. We became good friends, and um, I started this road. And it was like totally by accident. Seems how it goes. <laughs> yeah. um, so you go through treatment, and, and you, you haven't looked back since. I haven't looked back since. When I got out of treatment, uh, there's a funny story. I got out at 4 in the morning because okay. I wanted to drive back to the belly of the beast, Las Vegas, where uh-huh. I live, and I wanted to go right to an AA meeting. Okay. So I had it all scheduled, so I, I got out. I, I got back in my, my Denali, and I drove to Vegas, and I was like 100% a new guy. I had had a spiritual experience when I was there. I became a, a fitness freak. Um, I was never doing this again. No question, no chance. I'm a 30-day guy. And as I'm driving into Vegas, and the sun has just come up, and I'm looking down at the lights, and right as this happened, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. my back, I got this, like, major spinal, like, twist, tweak, and, I, and I, my arms felt electric, and I had goosebumps, and I started sweating, and all of a sudden, I had this uncanny remembering that I have this... Full and locked and loaded, I'm holding my wallet, ATM card. It's like, <laughs> wow. And I'm driving. And um, during my professional career, I used to brag that I could cop in any city in America. And there's probably a hundred. Cop? Uh, I, could, uh, I could find drugs. Get drugs. Uh, and, okay. and acquire them. Okay. I had um, never heard this and, term. And there was a hundred cities in America where I'd fly in, do a business meeting. And then in the evening, whenever we were done with dinner or whatever professional thing I had to do, I know how to go into every city in America and score mm-hmm. and, and really fast. And mm-hmm. I remember bragging in different cities. They're like, well, where were you find it? I was like, sit right here. And I would run out of the restaurant and I'd walk back in and I would throw it on the table like I'm a miracle worker. Because uh, um, I... Uh, You're a drug magician. I'm a, I, uh, I have a deep hunger in my soul that just comes to my eyes. Maybe you're just, re- maybe you're just really, really good at Manifest. manifestation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but, um, so let's see. So where you're we're driving, You're driving. I'm driving in town. Okay. And, and my ATM card, I'm suddenly aware, and I'm coming up to the spaghetti ball. And I picked a meeting at the time. I, it was the pizza meeting on Sahara and Fort Apache that I was going to. Oh, at yeah, eight round o- table. Well, it wasn't round table. That was at noon, but there was an 8 o'clock oh. meeting that I thought was on the schedule. So as I come to town, I also know I can make a right and go downtown. 
and all of a sudden I'm fighting my steering wheel and I see the veins of my arms popping up and in my brain, if you would have asked me which way you're going to turn, I would say I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I, and and I'm, I'm going through this major fight and I'm hyperventilating and I don't know. And then I, like, I try to like lean with my body and just to shimmy the truck to go left instead of going right. And I barely made it when that fork came. And then I drove like a bat out of heck to, uh, to this meeting. Mm-hmm. And I pull up at the meeting. And remember, I was a 30-day guy. So when I looked at the schedule, I saw there was an 8 o'clock meeting. There, there was no meeting there. So I'm pulling on the door uh, on, on Ford Apache and Sahara. And I'm freaking out. You're like, let me in <laughs> I right now. I need some of this right now. <laughs> They're not there. So I pull out my phone, and I call the treatment center. And I'm like, this is World War III. This is a catastrophe. The world. I, what year I, is this? This is 2005. Okay. And after 20 minutes of threatening lawyers and hell, I demanded the CEO of the treatment center get on the phone with me. <laughs> and he got on the phone with me after me talking enough smack. He's like, relax, Dave. He's like, Dave, Dave, what? And I'm like, and I explained this whole story that I checked out at four o'clock in the morning because I have to go to, I have to be in a meeting. I'm in the belly of the beast. I have my ATM card. And he's like, so what are you doing? I was like, I'm trying to go to this meeting, but the meeting isn't here. And he said, Dave, go to a different meeting. (laughs) Find another one. And I was like, brilliant. Thank you. And I hung up on him immediately. Um, And I I went to Faith Lutheran. and, um, And at Faith Lutheran, I walked in, I told that same story. Some guy, TJ, walked up to me out of the, after the meeting. He was a Navy SEAL. He poked me in the chest, and he said, I'm your sponsor. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't know who he was, but I didn't like him. And I was terrified, <laughs> and I said, okay. And he told me to, to read something and to be there in the morning. He just bullied you into it. <laughs> and, I, and I did it. And I went, and he told me I had to do 90 meetings in 90 days, which seemed completely inconvenient. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I did it. When I was done with that, this guy, Coffee Mike, he told me I had to make... No, always New Jersey Mike. Mike. New Jersey Mike. He had the coffee committee. He told me I had to make coffee. And then he gave me the keys to the church, which is a magical moment in my life because I'm a, you know, I'm kind of a in the shadows kind of guy. I'm not really a, a, a church guy. Um, and the fact that he gave me the key, I was like holding it. I couldn't believe it. And I was looking up for lightning <laughs> and it didn't come. But uh, I knew I had to be there at 6 a.m. to have the coffee ready by 6.45. It's really early. Because a bunch of these grumpy... People were going to come and want coffee, and um, I didn't want to mess up, so I, I did it, and I ended up doing that for two years. Wow! Um, during that time, I actually got sober. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as a as a happenstance, <laughs> right? Well, when did you start your service? Because it seemed obviously, like I said, we started out. You do all these things. There had to be a, a well, I, a bulb. Well, I, I waited till I had 90 days till I opened up a treatment center. Um, you had 90 days when you opened up a treatment center? When I got 90 days, I filed for the license for solutions recovery. And uh, I was, um, I, they told me to pray. I'd never prayed before when I was praying. And, and at the time, I still had this ridiculously paying job at the insurance company. I'd worked there for 20 years. And um, I felt compelled to quit my job. I felt compelled to uh, open up a treatment center. So I emptied out my 401k that I'd accumulated over 20 years. And I opened up a little rehab called Solutions Recovery. We had a 10 bed house. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the only, they call them like a BHT or a tech. Yeah, I know. I slept in the house every day with the clients. I drove in a group 
once they went in group, I had three hours for my life where I can go like go dating or supermarket shopping or do whatever I want to do. I mean, then when they were out of group, I had to be there because I was with the clients 20, what is that? Uh, 21 hours a day, um, except while they were in group. And mm -hmm. I just, uh, I just did just what I did in rehab. Okay. And, um, solutions, uh, slowly grew from this 10 bed joint that I had for a couple of years to a 20 bed joint to, uh, we were 400 beds, uh, as I sold it, um, to AAC, right? To AAC. Yeah. I used to work there. Oh, nice. Uh, I worked in the kitchen. Oh, wow. For four and a half years. Um, at Desert Hope? Yeah. I just talked to uh, both Jared Menz and Michael Cartwright today. Wow. Uh, they were president and CEO. Yeah. Michael resigned as CEO yesterday. Oh, wow. Um, which um, they've had sort of a, a uh, an interesting journey. Yeah. And um, I, I appreciate his vision of trying to have treatment available on a name brand around the country. We still need it. Um, there's a lot of forces against it. And yeah. whether they're payer forces or legislative forces or drug addiction forces, it's it's a really tricky business. Uh, there's also been some bad actors in the business, which but it's you know it's that that way with everything. Yeah, I completely agree. I also worked at uh, LVRC. Great, great little facility. Um, Mel Pole is a doc over there, and I, I know love Mel. him. Um, I actually teamed up the CEO of LVRC for three years. His name was John Sealand. Okay, I don't know him. He's a 30-plus year NA guy, solid. Him and I founded Vegas Stronger. We worked together. Okay. And uh, John is absolutely awesome. And I love the fact that... Maybe you can uh, do a... What's it called? Intr introduction. 100% I will. Now, an interesting fact, and I'm going to challenge particularly Kaylin here... Um, in Austin, when they have Recovery Fest, mm -hmm. over 10,000 people show up. Sure. In Vegas, when we have little recovery events, we have 100 people show up. And it's 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 maybe at the No Hero and Heroin, probably yeah, Black, the biggest event. Black Monday. Black Monday. Maybe we get 500. Mm -hmm. but I think last year they had uh, like six, and I think they projected around eight this, this, this time around. Uh, I think I, I'm... I'm hoping upwards of a thousand, maybe closer to fifteen hundred. I mean, it's all about really word of mouth and and uh, this and outreach and, and, and yeah. Like I mean, all people like Dave and you and and all of us getting the word out there. I mean, I purchased a booth. I'm gonna I'm I'm yeah. gonna be there, and uh, I encourage folks to go to this uh, Black Monday awareness event. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna be doing live stuff there too. Nice. Now, to to me, what I'm challenging you with is that the fact that Austin is ten thousand, Vegas. Our recovery community has become fractured. And, and the fact that John, who used to be an LVRC NA guy, and Dave, who is a Solutions AA guy, have teamed up, mm -hmm. to me, is also symbolic. Mm -hmm. Because rather than being a purely HA person, or I love my CMA people, um, rather than being a separate faction, we all need to embrace recovery, however that works Multiple for folks. And, and we all need to be able to show up at Black Monday to show that we're all unified for recovery. I completely agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that it's happening. It really is. I think it's just the the intention behind it really is is what's going to change everything. I like you know? to call it recovery con. I, I heard that in the, I thought that was a great idea. You know Comic-Con? I do. He's saying we should start recovery con. 
All right. <laughs> Sorry. No. Um, what, what are those girls who dress in outfits who go to, go to Comic-Con? Uh, the cosplayers. The cos, yeah, I didn't know what that, okay. All right, I just have weird thoughts about Comic-Con and, and the word con. Girls in tiny outfits. And con has negative connotations to me. So recovery it means is convention. opposite of a con. It, mean, it means convention. convention. Recovery is truth and integrity. No, no, well, no, no. It's, it means convention. We want a recovery convention. All right. In, in this so, context. Yeah. I'm older than you guys. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, a con was, was a what convict. you become if you use drugs. Which is a double entendre. Hey, yeah. So, uh, all right. <laughs> he's not no, for it. He's not buying uh, it. He's not for 100% <laughs> behind what Kaylin said was the intention. Yeah. That we all need to pull together mm-hmm. and the pure intention behind the no hero and heroine effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Joe Engel um, yes. is, is paramount and... Please uh, tell your friends if you're in recovery, if you're exploring recovery, if if you're like me and you have a, you're a codependent who has a person who needs to be in recovery and it's killing you, um, you need to be at this event. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's this is where it begins. Places like this. So if uh, you could say one thing to somebody who's maybe thinking about recovery or hasn't yet or just got in it, what would it be? Call me. Um, my name's Dave, uh, 702-234-1356. That's my personal cell phone. You want me to if, put that out? Yeah. If you were thinking about recovery, um, call me. I'll meet you for a cup of coffee. I'll help you get there. Um, recovery is the hands-down best thing that's ever happened in my life. And I've been handed a baby from two doctors who funnily both worked for me at the time, that they cut them out of my wife, and they handed me a little baby covered in cream cheese. And, and that was an amazing moment. But to me, it's still not as good as recovery is. Mm. Uh, to me, in eighth grade, when my mom gave me these really dorky brown tortoiseshell glasses and I put them on and I rode my bike down the street in Huntington on Bay Avenue and I looked at all the trees and I could not believe how beautiful the world was, that wasn't as good as getting into recovery and what it's been for my You're life. You're saying that sight itself was not as good as recovery. <laughs> yes, I believe mm, you. I, I feel like it's kind of, you know, like it isn't, it's I believe a, a it's, new sight. Exactly. You, know? you got a, you got different vision. Yeah. Yeah. It was like putting on even a new, a, pair, of a new pair of glasses. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, I've heard that, Mr. Glassy. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a website? Um, VegasStronger.org. That's a cool one. Cool. Yeah. Would you like to come on again? Anytime. I think there's a, a plethora of things that we could get into with you. As you see, we could tangent um, a and, bunch of times and have some fun. And uh, how many people listen to this? Uh, on a good week, five hundred. Wow. On a bad week, a hundred. Okay. Uh, if any of you five hundred or a hundred have been insulted uh, or offended by me, I you apologize. have his phone. You have his phone yeah, number, and you and can you call do. him. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thank you, Dave Marlin. Yeah, Thanks so thank much you. for having me on. Yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, thanks. on all the major streaming platforms iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher give us a rating on that iTunes Apple Podcast thing we uh, need them 
Follow us on social media at Recover Everything. Go to our website, recovereverything.com to tell us a story, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you.